This presentation is from Design Research 2017, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Come in, come in, come in, and we'll get started. So we have four talks left. The first of those four uh, looks at, I guess, taking account of culture as something more than simply language. Is that a good summary, Rose? Yeah, pretty good. Okay. <laughs> we'll get a, a, a deeper description in a moment. But uh, please join me in welcoming Rose Matthews to the stage. Thank, Thank you. you. I'm going to actually stand up here. Is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> Can everyone see? Yay. Um, yeah, so my name's Rose. Um, I think this is a subject that it's always been out there. There's always been this issue of, of if you've got something good, how can you take it out to new territories, to new cultures? Um, but certainly in the digital age, it's, it's something that's almost endemic, right? If you have an online business, your hope, your goal is going to be quite from quite early on for it to grow and expand and to take out to new territories. So um, it's something that hasn't always been done well. Uh, you can Google bad translations online, and uh, this is a great example. I cannot read the Chinese on here, but the English translation is, if you are stolen, call the police at once. I'm sure that was meant to be something more sensible. Um, this is one of my favorites from my own country. I don't know if anyone's seen this before. This is from Wales. <laughs> so uh, in English, it reads, no entry for heavy goods vehicles, residential site only. And the people who made this sign were obliged to print it in Welsh, so they sent it off to a translation, an email-based translation service with local government. And the reply came back very quickly, and they printed it. And that translates roughly to, thank you for your email, I'm currently out of the office. <laughs> Going back a little bit as well, so Electrolux being a, a Swedish uh, vacuum cleaner brand... Uh, they decided to translate into English, nothing sucks like an Electrolux, which works fine in Europe, but try taking that to the United States. <laughs> and there are nuances to language as well. There are, there are things that, you know, you can take plain English as, as an advice for, for how we might translate things, but actually there's more to that. There's more that's embedded in, in, in our understanding. Um, and, of course, this is something that appears a lot on US TV. Has everybody seen this when they've uh, watched something that... Um, from there, and it's viewer discretion is advised. And this always bugs me because what does that mean? Viewer discretion is advised. It's very passive, it's sort of a bit technical, it doesn't really mean anything. You, you could probably rewrite that in plain English and say, some people might find this disturbing as a warning before you watch adult TV. Uh, or you could say, are you sure you want to watch this? Now, while both of those things might technically make more sense, if you started replacing the formal warning and putting this instead, then that would confuse people because they're not used to it. That's not, that's not what you say. So even though viewer discretion is advised is terrible English, that's, that's a marker, that's kind of a cultural marker that people understand what that means. So there's a lot to think about. Uh, now, I didn't realise that we were going to have an Uber employee in the room. Where are you? Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, I know that uh, you know, this, this was uh, back in 2011 when Uber was already um, seeing great success in the US and decided to internationalize for the first time. And the first city that they chose to do that in was Paris. 
Um, and I know they carried out a lot of uh, research in, in trans you know, car transportation systems and how things work. And this is a great quote from Travis. It's a really point, um, interesting way of looking at it, where he said, we found that there are classes of cities that are not based on country. Case in point, Paris is much more like San Francisco in terms of car service transportation than New York is. So that's a really interesting way of looking at it, that it's not actually just about one country being the same and another country being different, but actually cities can have parallels across countries. Um, but while that may have been true for the way that car service transportation works, when Uber actually took off in Paris, the, the culture of, of protest and of job protection and of workers' rights in Paris led to absolutely huge riots. So we had blockages, we had people smashing up cars that they thought Uber drivers might be in. Um, famously, Courtney Love was dragged out of an Uber at, at Charles de Gaulle Airport. It was, it was really quite horrific, and it ended with some Uber executives being prosecuted with criminal charges. It it's works really well now, but there, was, there were some stumbles. <laughs> so I'm not going to pretend that I've got all the answers to this. And, and actually, I don't think there is one universal formula I can give you for, for how you should move your business into new territories. But I have got a couple of very quick case studies where I've been privileged enough to work on projects like this. Um, and some of the things that I've learned along that way that hopefully is going to help you guys. So the first one I'd like to talk about um, is in the Solomon Islands. So um, before going there, I knew very little about this country, but it is it's actually formed of over 200 small islands, which are divided into a number of provinces. And of course, for somewhere where um, internet isn't something that's across the whole country, and even where it is, it's, it's very sparse, uh, th those islands are much less connected than we might expect people in, in different towns, for example, in Australia to be. So that means that they've actually got a lot of little subcultures, and each province has its own dialect, its own way of speaking, its own way of behaving. It's one of the really interesting differences is that if you um, look at most of the provinces, it's, it's male-led. So it's, it's the man who farms the coconuts and kind of rules the village. Um, but in one large province called Isabel, it's matriarchal. So actually the women own the land, and they pass it down to their daughters. And that has a real impact on the way that... that that people kind of see their own roles and their own lives. So I had the privilege of working on a project um, that was uh, formed of partnerships, the Central Bank of the Solomon Islands, the Asia Development Bank, various commercial banks, including a couple of Australian banks that operate overseas as well, um, to look at actually going out to some of these remote communities and places that we don't know a lot about their subcultures. Um, what should banking services look like there? Um, so we took a very ethnographic approach to this kind of research. It's, it wasn't something that's easy to do. You can't just get on the internet and, and Google all these little islands and, and what happens there. Um, you have to go there in person, and you have to take your time with it as well. So this is, a, this is a, an island that I actually went to. So we actually traveled there on that little blue boat that you can see, which is like a two-hour journey over high seas. Terrifying. Um, <laughs> and three... Three of us in my research team stayed in the, the little blue cabin in the middle. Um, we had researchers from the University of South Pacific to partner with us, so they uh, had the local language. When I say that, they had the national language of pidgin. Uh, actually, the, the individual dialects were a bit more of a challenge even for them. Um, and that gave us the resources to really go out and, and make a big deal of this. So to start with, we ran a survey, a face-to-face -face survey, uh, the researchers from the university asked people questions about how they manage finance and what's important for banking. Uh, and in some provinces, they actually spoke to one in four households, so they got a lot of penetration, a lot of data from that. 
But then we wanted to immerse ourselves in the community a little bit more. And the thing is, with the Solomon Islands, uh, they're used to kind of white people from Australia, from other countries, coming in here and sitting them down and telling them things. So they kind of expected that, and they, they would sit there quietly and, and wait for us to tell them what to say. Um, so we wanted to put them in a position of power where that wasn't really the case anymore. So we kind of took this approach. We said, look, we, we're actually here to learn from you. Um, we're new here. We don't, we don't know how to, how to live as a Solomon Islander. Can you teach us? Can, can you pretend that we're you know, your children or, or young people growing up on the island, and we need to be taught how to manage our finances? And through that, we could infer what they consider to be important. And we also gave out cameras. Um, we said, take this camera and take pictures of things that are important to you. Uh, and bring that back and we'll have a little discussion and you can tell us why that's important to you and, and why you think about this as, as something important in your daily life. So the one thing I really want to focus on here is the amount of time that was needed. So in the first few days, it was easy for us to kind of find out who's who, what's where, uh, who's kind of got different roles, what's going on. And in the first week, we'd completed a lot of these surveys, and we knew what people were saying about finance. Now, as, been, as has been pointed out earlier in this conference, what people say and what they do are very often different things. And it took a couple of weeks before we could really observe people interacting with finance and understand how that was different. By the third week, we were able to actually see the impact of some of the issues people had talked about. So when somebody says, oh, actually, there's no cash on this island, I have to pay somebody to take me on the boat to another island, and if that island has run out of cash, I can't pay the boatman to bring me home again, and then you actually see that happening, and you see families kind of going, well, where, where's Fred? He, he's been away all day. He hasn't come back yet. <laughs> it's not funny. Uh, and it took an entire month to actually earn enough trust from the women on some of these islands to realize that actually this, is, this, is, this goes even deeper, that in some of the communities, if women talk too much about finance or try to take a steer on this, then they'll be hit by the husbands. And that's something you can't just pick up in a few days. Uh, of course, it didn't finish there, so we, we uh, looked at um, co-creating uh, with them as well. We uh, set up a workshop in the capital in Honiara. We actually um, floated... Uh, flew in some of the um, coconut farmers from the further islands and got them to sit alongside people from the central bank and the commercial banks and even telephony providers as well uh, to, to kind of work on what maybe some solutions could be. Um, and this is where I misjudged uh, a little bit as well as facilitator of this workshop. I underestimated the, the impact that religion has on business over there. So um, it's a very Christian nation. I'm not Christian. I didn't realize that you're supposed to open a workshop with a prayer and say grace before lunch and, and close with a prayer. So I was very relieved that somebody did kind of jump in and take that over for me, but there are, there are things, cultural differences that you're not always ready for. Uh, and then it was going back out there with some of those ideas and, and testing them. Case study number two is very different from that. Uh, so this is uh, a, a time when PayPal... Uh, Everybody's familiar with PayPal, right? Yeah. Good. Uh, PayPal were very successful across North America and Western Europe, but it was a time when they were still very much expanding into new territories, and they were doing so at, at a very quick rate as well. Uh, so they asked me and my team if we would look at how they can adapt for new territories they were moving into, 
Um, and in this case, it was, it was much more specific. It was the details, the nuances. Um, they've already got this platform. They want, they want to be efficient about this. They want to leverage the same platform. But how can they make it make sense in these new countries? Uh, so the first ones that we went to were Egypt, Russia, Sweden, and Denmark. And I'm going to talk you through the method that we employed. So uh, first of all, we would go out to that country and find a linguist that we could partner with. So somebody who's really an expert in that language and in how things work. And we would pair them up with our UX designers so that they could create a, a dummy, a prototype version of the payment platform in a new language. This is it in Russian, I believe. We then set up focus groups in that country. Uh, so we set up some focus groups with uh, people who would be likely to purchase goods through it. It was very heavily linked to eBay at the time. Uh, and also people who would be selling goods through it. to get. And we divided those into separate groups to be able to get a real view on, on how those differed. So we'd start off at the beginning of the focus group, what do you already understand about digital payment services? So some people were more or less familiar with that as a concept. But by listening to them talk about it, we could really gather the language that they naturally use, that they would come up with without us prompting it. Then we would give them a word or a term out of context, just on its own. What does this word mean to you? What kind of connotations do you have with that? Um, to give you an example in English, uh, I, don't, I actually don't know what the case is in Australia, but in the UK, you could say that something is a, is a scheme. You can say we've got a, a finance scheme for you. But if you say that in the US... Scheme has all these connotations of being an evil scheme. It's something that bad comic book characters do. So you have to use it a little bit differently. So we'd ask them all about that. What does this word mean? Uh, and then once we've uh, collected their immediate understanding of that, we could then show it in context. Bring up the prototype. Well, here's a page that includes this term. How does this change your understanding of it? Um, or you know, when, when you see all of this together, what does this mean to you now? So logistically, there was uh, me in the observation room with my client, the guys from PayPal who'd flown in from San Jose. Uh, there was also the linguist who we'd been working with who, who needed to observe all of this live as well. Uh, and we had a live translator who actually had the headphones on and was speaking into a microphone and translating everything into English uh, as we went along. So we were able to listen into that. Uh, and of course, we had to recruit participants. And that's something that I couldn't do remotely. We had to use local partners to, to be able to do that for us. So um, not everything runs smoothly. <laughs> in Egypt, which was the first country we did this in, um, we'd set up everything. We had partners who had set up the focus groups and the recruitment, and they had the lab there ready to go. And we, we flew in and um, started watching the focus group. And they were, kind of they were doing the introductions and things, and they were doing it all in English. We're like, well, when are you going to switch to a local language? Because that's, that's really what we're here for. Um, and we kind of interrupted after, after the participants were replying in English as well. And they said, no, 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 we set it all up in English so you could understand. <laughs> well, thank you, but yeah. Um, in Sweden, uh, we showed up, and I had been on the phone to these recruiters you know, for, for a week beforehand. Can you confirm what participants we've got? Who's coming? Is it all all right? Yeah, yeah, it's fine. We haven't got them, but it'll, it, they will be there. That's fine. And we showed up, and we had our client who'd flown in from San Jose again, and we went into the facility, and we had no, literally nobody, not one person for this focus group. So we had to extend the stay and, and re-recruit and make that happen. And then in Russia, uh, this is my mistake... <laughs> Uh, I was looking at hotels in St. Petersburg and went, oh, God, they're really expensive, aren't they? I'm a bit of a bargain hunter. I can, I can find a better deal. And I found a place that was only $200 a night, which I think is pretty high. 
And yes, this is a camera phone picture I took of my hotel. <laughs> there was no Wi-Fi. There was no drinkable water. I'm pretty sure there were fireworks. But I survived. And then, of course, once all of that is dealt with, how do you synthesize that data? So we've now got uh, everything recorded in local language. We've got the same thing translated straight into English as well. But how can you actually make that meaningful? How can you, um, you know, how, how can you describe the way that somebody who doesn't speak the same language as you is thinking about things? So in fact, the synthesis for this research took at least as long as actually setting up and executing it, because we had to keep, again, the same linguist, keep them involved and work with them. So we gave them the lead on, on how to synthesize this. We'd have a conversation. They'd talk about what they heard in their version, we talk about what we heard from the English translation, we discuss it, and then we'd agree what we think it is. But the linguist always was, had the final decision on what it should be. Um, of course, there's another layer from that. So financial services is, is very tricky area, right? There are a lot of legal complications, and that's different in each country. So we would then have compliance experts coming in and saying, well, you can't use that word, that's misleading. But that's not what people are thinking. So that, that again, triggered more of those discussions, but the linguist always had the last say. Well... Compliance always has the last say, don't they? <laughs> uh, so uh, I'll just give you a couple of um, little findings that we had from this. So when we went through uh, particular concepts with people, we kind of expected it to be about language, and it sometimes went a little bit further than that. Um, but Help Center was one of the things that we wanted to test with people. Uh, and I've just got the example here from Russia. So they thought that it was a, a Help Center, something that's going to help you use the website, which is pretty much kind of true. Uh, but they all said it should be FAQ, which isn't a Russian word. Or like, literally, they called it fuck. But when, when, when we're sitting there in the observation room, and you can't really understand what's going on, but all the participants are going, fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> uh, withdrawal. So in Sweden, um, they understood that this was uh, how you get money from a gambling website. So they all understood this concept of withdrawing digitally. Um, security. In Russia, they said... Uh, there's nothing to worry about, but you keep talking about it, so now I'm getting worried. <laughs> and similarly, for identity theft, um, they were like, well, this means somebody's stolen my driving license. Why would somebody steal my driving license? There was just no underlying concept of having your identity stolen as a whole. Um, and then electronic transfer of funds, sending money, that was all rel relatively understood. But because we ended up with these much deeper insights now that were beyond just straightforward language, uh, PayPal realized that rather than just testing it in these new territories, we should go back to some of our old ones and, and review the language there. And actually, it's in the UK and it's in the USA. And as I mentioned earlier, there are, there are some key differences in the way that people speak there. So we did. We went back out and we, we used that same method back in English-speaking countries as well. I don't think we were in Australia at the time. But I think that's a really interesting point because um, it's, it's, you know, there are all these massive cultural differences. But actually, let's just look at our own backyard for a moment because Australia is so hugely diverse. We've got so many different people here who are living in different situations, who have different languages that they, that they would habitually use at home, who um, might want slightly different services. And even if we don't want to create a different website for every single one of them or a different online platform, uh, isn't there something in gathering all of those different versions. You know, it's so easy to stay in Sydney or in Melbourne and, and just do research here, but, but there's, there's a wider country for us to explore. So to summarize then, key learnings from these case studies. Discovery, 
you need to take the time to fully immerse yourself in discovery. If you want to do a really good research job and you're exploring a new culture, don't assume that you can just, you can just get it by doing home visits for a few interviews. You really need to immerse yourself. Uh, Co-creation. Um, we all have kind of workshop leading skills, I'm sure, and, and, and ways that we like to do things. But sometimes when you go to a new culture, you really have to understand the way that they're used to conducting business and how you might need to change that to suit. Concept testing. Uh, don't exhaust the participants. Um, I will say that when we're talking about that PayPal test and we're giving them a word and then we're putting it in concepts and then another word, that's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty tiring. So you need to break that up a little bit and maybe, maybe switch it around, switch the format, make sure you've got plenty of breaks, plenty of sugar. Um, synthesis is about collaborating with the experts. You, it's not something that you can always do on your own. You need everybody there to help to synthesize. And logistics. Um, the thing is, I've said here clear and constant communication, because I think in some of those cases where we had logistical issues, perhaps more communication would have helped. But actually, there's no way to 100% guarantee that it's going to come off. And I'd say maybe even a bigger learning here is to go with the flow, to kind of say, maybe it's not going to be right, but let's have a plan B in our pockets, and let's not panic. Let's just find a way to carry on. That's me. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this presentation from Design Research 2017. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.